Uh, to let you know, um, Easter is next month, it's, so it's kind of right around the corner. And we normally do what's called a Good Friday service, and we are not doing a Good Friday service this year. We're going to do something called a Monday Thursday service. And so it's on the Thursday before the Friday. I'll explain to you in detail more what that means as we get closer to it. But just keep that in mind. It's going to be on Thursday and not Friday. Monday Thursday service is really for people who call themselves believers in Jesus Christ. If you are someone who is trying to reach one of your friends who don't really know Jesus, don't invite them to Monday Thursday because it's going to be like, what is going on here? Not that it's going to be all weird or anything like that, but there's just metaphors and things that are used that may not be understood by people who haven't trusted Christ yet. So just throw it out there. Invite them to Easter. That'll be the thing to bring them to. <laughs> or a normal Sunday morning service where we just make fun of ourselves the entire time. If you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And you open it up on the left side, you're going to get a half-page recap of what we talked about today. On the right-hand side, you'll get some questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about. On the back, you're going to get the verses we're going through today. Underneath that, there is also a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. It just looks like Bible once you download it. Uh, and then you click on More and then Events. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Elm. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is James chapter 3, verse 10. And it says this, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would teach us how to be a people who speak out from our understanding of your goodness first given to us. And that how we talk in the world, how we interact with those around us would really first come from that place of humility, of trusting you and of loving you so that we would step out in this world and people would see that we live the way we do because you have first loved us. Make us and teach us to be a people who respond to who you are and what you've done in us by what we say and what we do. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in the book of James. This is... uh, Week 11, we are starting chapter 3, so we only spent two weeks in chapter 2. I promised you that. Only going to spend two weeks in chapter 3. Can you believe it? We spent eight in chapter 1, if you haven't been here for that, so that's how this is going. Uh, James is most likely one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Uh, Earlier, a few years ago, we went through the second part of the book of Acts, and we got to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, they're going through all these questions about how the church is going to interact in the world when people want to become part of the family of God. And there are these questions of, do Gentiles need to be circumcised to be able to be part of the kingdom of God? And so this whole camp will take place and kind of deals with this. And in the end, they come back and they say no. And every Gentile heaved a sigh of relief in that. Uh, and But you have to understand, James is probably written before that council in Acts 15. And so in it, you really see a lot of these beginning ideas of how Judaism moves into Christianity with Jesus as the Messiah, him being the one that fulfills all of these promises. And James is the leader of that early church in Jerusalem. James was someone who loved Jesus in such a way that even people who didn't follow Jesus or love Jesus looked at James and said, that guy's a good dude. As a matter of fact, there is this early historian, his name is Josephus. Josephus started out as a Pharisee and he was impressed with James's way of life. Uh, Josephus would say that James was in the temple every day on his knees praying for the people, that he was a man of integrity, that he followed the law. 
When James was actually killed in 62 AD, Josephus said in his histories that many of the people were afraid that killing such a godly man would bring the wrath of God down on the city of Jerusalem. How did James die? The Pharisees and the Sadducees at one of the feasts invited him to get up and speak to the people, hoping that James would not talk about Jesus as the Messiah and simply talk about God, don't follow this Jesus. And so James gets up and he tells everybody, you need to follow Jesus as the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything God promised and what they then did was took him to the highest part of the temple and threw him off of it he hits the ground he does not die so they come and they beat him to death instead go james okay so josephus writes this maybe that's the reason why it it is the city of jerusalem maybe that's the reason why it was sacked in 70 a.d Josephus looks at this and says, it's because we killed James. That's the problem. So James isn't about Jew. He believed the Bible, and yet he came to trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior who had come. And James has talked about in his book so far what true and real Christianity looks like. It's supposed to come out of us in our actions. And today I'll start talking again how it's supposed to come out in our words. He has just finished talking about the poor and all of the heart issues that we have. And in today's world, when we hear the poor, we don't really see all the nuances that James is talking about when he refers to it. When we think of the poor, we just think of those who has less than we have, someone maybe who is a little destitute. When James and Jesus both talk about the poor, it is that, but it's also those who are poor in spirit, who understand their condition. It's not just someone who can't afford cable or their manicures. It's someone in a position that understands who they are before God. And so when we tend to do okay in terms of our own lifestyle in our life, we tend to think that's the result of our hard work. And I'm not saying some of it's not some of the hard work you do, but it is all really grace in the end because God has given us the ability to work and do the things that we do. If you were born to parents in the 13th century of Tibet or in a cave in the middle of Australia and you walked into modern society, you would have a completely different view of that society because of where you're from. And this whole idea that James and Jesus both talk about being poor in spirit or understanding the poor when we get to that destitute place, that enables us to see the culture that we are in completely completely different than we ever have before. And so he keeps trying to pushing towards this and what we what we look at that. Many times it is in losing everything that brings us to a place of humility where we trust Christ with our lives. Our salvation is not about our self-sufficiency. It's about Christ's sufficiency. And the truly poor in spirit that Jesus talks about see that life is hard. And we're not a people who can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, so to speak, because we don't even have boots. So we don't have straps. We have all failed. We've all sinned against God. And those who haven't experienced failure really don't come to the place where they understand that as well as someone who is poor in spirit. We don't really get to the place where we understand the true grace of God. And maybe it's those poor or even I would say sometimes people at funerals who have lost a lot of things who see this because the gospel will come into us and say the world is a terrible and dark place. And we say, yes, it is. But in the gospel, we realize there's actually hope that God hasn't left us in that dark place. We say, you know, people are terrible sinners and they want to stab you in the back. We go, yes, they're terrible. And yet there's hope. Because God hasn't left us just to the devices of other people. See, the poor sometimes really get that. They understand that in a way that other people don't. Sometimes people with white picket fences, and in our house we have a white fence out in front of it. Sometimes people with, you know, doing really well, they say, look at all I've done for myself. I'm so good, I don't really need God, and I'm a good person because everything's happening well for me. And we look at the poor and we say, oh, those poor people, they've done something evil, they've done something wrong. And maybe what you have to understand is that sometimes people in those straits, that's actually the grace of God. 
as he grows and takes people to a place where you understand who he is. And maybe that's been you. Maybe you had a whole lot of things in your life and God has moved you to a place where you lost everything and you saw the world completely differently. That is poor in spirit. Understanding that God loves you and many times those trials that James talks about that we go through are grace as God humbles us and brings us back to himself. Sometimes I think the poor know better than anybody else how everybody is sinful. And most people don't realize how sinful we are until we become poor, at least poor in spirit. And I think this is what kind of James pushes towards and what Jesus pushes us towards to understand places of poor and powerless and Jesus' riches and the grace and the strength that he gives us. So open your Bibles to James chapter 3. It's on page 655 if you have an element Bible. To be spiritually poor is when we would come to Jesus and we would say, I am in debt to you. I am utterly bankrupt. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I cannot do this life on my own. And I think anyone who truly comes to a place where they actually follow Jesus, who actually love him and how we live in the world, we have to see ourselves for who we are before him and who Jesus truly is. Jesus, through his poverty, has made us rich. And I think so many people miss this and misunderstand this. And I think this is why James goes the way he does in his book. He keeps talking about low positions and high positions and trials and all of these things. Two weeks ago, he talks about favoritism. And last week, he talks about living out our faith in our lives. And then he gets Gets to James chapter 3 verse 1 and he says not many of you should become teachers my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness see James is keep coming back to these things with us and kind of poking at us like I talked about last week how are we living what are we doing and you might read that and think I'm not a teacher thank goodness well in one sense though we all teach we all want everybody to agree with us about whatever crazy thing we have in our mind I have seen your Facebook posts I have seen your Instagram stories whether it's real news or fake news or memes you're all throwing that in there trying to get people to come to your point of view so they would agree with you it could be something weird and dumb like you should have 100 cats. Some of you could be, could be some of you like, these are my political views. You got, but we all try and teach in some way. And so we can't just brush this off. Now, though, when James talks about this, he is talking about a specific type of teacher. And to be honest, when I read James 3, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. I read this and it freaks me out a little bit. Because I see this, and I think sometimes I should just stop preaching and teaching altogether. Every time someone comes to Element and they are offended by a joke I tell, when it's warranted, sometimes I think it's not warranted, but when it's warranted, every time someone leaves Element because of something I said, every time someone misunderstands the gospel in some way, that, and someone's been attending here, like, I'm not going to go there anymore, that hurts. And I think, what have I done in the midst of that? I think about this verse personally. I think there are lots of people in the world today who would love to preach or teach because they want to be celebrated or become celebrities, even if it's just in the midst of a little church congregation. But I can honestly tell you, that is not me. That is not me. It, it's funny because I make, I talk about our Yelp reviews sometimes we have online. You go to a lot of churches like, oh, this church is great. Ours, you should read some of our Yelp reviews because it's like, this church is terrible. That guy's an idiot. And it's like, yep, yep, that, that's us. It's just, it's just who we are. So we have this Yelp review online, and this guy came to Elman a few years ago. We were doing this series called Didn't See That Coming. Didn't See That Coming was all about the gospel, and we took different stories throughout the scriptures over 16 weeks, and we talked about how the gospel relates to that, how it points to what the gospel is, and I would give a little gospel statement to recap all that we talked about during this series. The week this guy came, I talked about Noah and the ark, and I talked about how Noah was a knucklehead, and he was only saved by the 
grace of God. Actually, in the text, it says, Noah received favor from the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. And in the text, favor is that Hebrew word for grace. So Noah gets the grace, and then he's called a righteous man. And so afterwards, this guy came up to me, and he said, Noah wasn't a knucklehead. He was a righteous guy. And I said, yeah, but it's after the grace. No, he was a righteous man. And I said, well, but he builds a boat, gets off the boat after all this time, plants a vineyard, makes wine, passes out naked and drunk in his tent. That's a committed drunk, and that's a knucklehead. And he goes, he goes, no, this is why people leave. And he goes, no, <laughs> Noah was a righteous man. And I said, you know what, we, we can agree to disagree in this, but, but I will tell you, I do not think Noah was the only guy who ever lived in the history of the world who did not need Jesus to rescue and save him. And he goes, no, he was a righteous man. And I'm like, okay, wh- whatever. The, so this guy writes this Yelp review, and this is what he writes. The pastor also likes to write a philosophical statement and get the congregation to say it aloud. It wasn't scripture, just his statement. He was was so proud of himself that he had them all saying his statement. He even challenged this service to do it better than the first service. Now, I, this is what he writes, and it makes me sad. It really does, because I'm not telling you this story to try to make myself sound better. I'm telling you this story to say, I hate when this happens. Maybe we weren't communicating as clearly as we could, but I hate for anyone to ever walk away from Element not understanding who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and our heart as a people and intent in what we do. Now, to give you clarity, uh, this is behind me right here. This is the statement that I had everybody repeat that morning based on the story of Noah. This is what it is. The gospel is the good news that though the inclination of our hearts are bent towards ourselves and our own glory, Jesus has come to us in grace and love to restore us to live for his glory and invites us into his mission, which focuses us outward from our own lives in help own lives to live in and help usher in the kingdom of God. That's the statement. Now, all of our elders went through that. Our staff went through that. So it wasn't just me. But this is the statement. And I walked away just feeling, man, I can't believe that someone misunderstood so much. And I think, should I not teach? And that's a long way I know to get to a place where teachers need to be careful what they teach. I am fully aware of that. I really am. Guys, I do not do what I do for the kudos. I do not do what I do for the glory, though sometimes I do like the cookies. Uh, but, but I teach what I do, how I do. I say the things that why we go through books the way that we do, because I want you to know Jesus better, period. That's it. Teachers can go so easy, full-on cult leaders. And some people love to have other people fawn over them. Some teachers will hate it if you question them. I will tell you, that is not us. Anybody we put up here that gives a message, you can ask them any question. You can ask Steve, Mike, Eric, any question after we're done. We'd love to talk to you about it. We are on this journey with you. Sometimes we might know certain things about the Bible more than you do. You might know more things than we do, but you certainly know other things in life more than we do, and none of those things make us better than each other. We are all in the same place. We all follow Jesus together. We're all on this journey together. And I just want to constantly come to you and remind you that we come to Jesus poor and needy. That's how we come, every single one of us. And we must be mindful about those around us and what we say and how we teach and the things that we do. I think if we just read James in context, we would start to realize this. So James continues on, verse 2, when he says this, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole life. Now, I don't want you to get lost in this because he is talking about our mouths and James is moving from our hearts and our lives to our tongues and our speech and and what we say. And he's going to remind us that, yes, we want to follow Jesus, but we will all stumble in certain ways. It's important to understand that everything that we say and do is 
teaching in one way or another. Our faith is working itself out in our lives, and it's also coming out of our mouths. So you want to hear a crazy statistic that I did not make up? Okay, the average person, this is not the overly talkative person or the super shy person, the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. One-fifth. And so that means if our words were put into print, the result would be a single day's words would fill a 50-page book. And in a year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books, 200 pages each. That's average. So you have to ask, what are we saying? What are we teaching? What are our words putting out there around us? So let me go and hear what James says. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. How does James feel about your tongues, right? Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree my brothers bear olives? The answer is no. Can a grapevine produce figs? The answer is no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And if I could whittle today down for you to two things, if you want to write this down, number one is this, words are powerful. Words are powerful. And secondly, the same thing that James keeps going on and on about is our words then are going to reveal the progress of our faith and who we are. That's what they're going to reveal. Chuck Swindoll once said of the tongue, this mere two-ounce slab of mucous membrane can legitimately boast of its disproportionate power to determine human destiny. So, words are powerful. They bless and they curse. James starts off trying to interject a little bit of first century humor in here. He says, you can tame falcons and killer whales and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but you cannot tame your tongue. Ha ha ha. I know you don't get it. You're not of the first century. Whatever. Our words can build each other up or tear each other down. What are we teaching? What are we saying? Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So how is that? Well, look at our current world today. Uh, Bullying now is a lot in the news. Uh, One in five students reported being verbally bullied. This is pre-COVID 2019. So obviously, kids can't go to school. So obviously, (laughs) obviously, it's got to get better, right? No, an increase of 34% uh, talked about cyberbullying, even when they couldn't even go to school. Words, tearing each other down, has shown to cause clinical depression, anxiety, sleep difficulty, and suicide. Because of this verbal abuse, one in four girls and one in ten boys have harmed themselves by cutting or some other mechanism. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in those 10 to 34 years of age. One in 20 adolescents say they have been touched by suicide in some way in their life in a given year. Do you know what the single most protective factor against those feelings were? Positive and encouraging interactions with our words. Have I said it? Words are 
powerful. I think James starts by talking about this tongue right after favoritism and the poor because for some reason we find it so easy to pick on those who are weak. This is why we must see us as a people who are poor in spirit. We come to Jesus humble so we see how we we are saved because that stops us from wanting to be a jerk to everybody else. Think about that. We don't tend to pick on the strong. Who do we pick on? The weak and the marginalized, from playgrounds to daycares to retail stores to friends, we choose the weak who are already marginalized and continue to marginalize them. You ever hear hot mic moments where people are sitting down and talking, they don't realize the mic is still on, and they just say some things, and you realize some people who claim to be the most compassionate in the world around us are actually bullies who demean other with their words. Words are powerful. They wound in ways that we are not even aware of. I was reading last year where this author said this, most of the ways we lash out and act have to do with some sort of wound that probably came about via words. Many times when we lash out, it's because someone has also hurt us with their words. That's what he says. Why? Because wounds can, words can hurt or they can heal. And this then especially becomes true for teachers. Sometimes I think the truth is hard to hear. I remember once reading about church plants. And if you're a church planter, you will look and see all the things that drive you nuts about a church plant are the things that drive you nuts about yourself. And it is exactly true. Everything drives me nuts about myself. Many times I look around home and I think, oh, what's that? And I'm like, oh, that's me. That's where I wasn't walking in the gospel. That's where I haven't trusted my life into Christ in that place. It's why with you guys, I am always bringing you back to the gospel. I'm always wanting to give you these positive words of encouragement to draw us back to who God is. Yes, we talk about how terrible we are as a people, but that's not meant to leave us in despair. It's meant to leave us in like, wow, and God has rescued me even in this state. This is so amazing. That's what we want to talk about. Teachers, people who slander and make reckless accusations of verbal attacks, who grumble and quarrel will naturally cause greater damage to the community where they are by virtue of their position and authority. And if you are in a place where you have any authority whatsoever, whether it's in your home, with your friends, at work, at school, wherever it is, you must be careful because you can easily poison the community you need to reach and teach. Now, we have had gospel communities at Element for about 10 years now. And we have seen throughout those 10 years different types. We have seen gospel communities where the leaders have become jaded. And instead of working for restoration, they simply complained and they poisoned everyone. We have seen GC leaders infect all of their GCs with judgment or narcissism or whining. We have also seen GCs infect their GCs with grace and hope and life. But we have to understand that our words are powerful. We all teach. What are we saying? Because our words are important because our words are powerful. God gives us the ability to communicate and use these words. How are we using them? For His glory or for ours? I've uh, just spent the last few weeks before I did this message reading some books on abuse inside and outside of the church. And I started thinking about these changes. I gave a couple people on staff some of the books and I said, hey, let's read these because I want to be a people who are listening to the abused and not simply writing them off. I want to be part of the solution. And so I read these stories about James McDonald and Bill Hybels and the Southern Baptist Convention where they used all of these words to discredit certain people who came forward. And what happens is eventually these words start to twist and all of a sudden the perpetrator sounds like the victims. People were lied to. People are lied about. And I started this message and I wrote this down. Words are powerful. 
Our words are powerful. We need to be careful because our words then become so easily twisted. We need to use our words to heal. We use our, need to use our words to build up. We don't need to use our words to destroy one another. We need to use our words to protect, to talk and speak about what the gospel is, not just try to protect ourselves or our organization. See, the gospel brings us to a place where our words start to actually change. So James will give three illustrations here that all point to the same thing. He says, we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us. This is true. You're not like, hey, horse, go stand over there. They don't do that. You got to put a bit in their mouth and take them where you want them to go. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Both of these things illustrate the power of speech. When it is used well and controlled, it is effective and it is wonderful. When it is not used well, when it's not controlled, it's a disaster. It can be enormous. He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. If you look at anything throughout world history, what you will see, the heights and the depths were all characterized by one thing, and that is words. It is rhetoric. How did Hitler get the Nazi party to go and try and take over the world? With rhetoric, with his words. One author says this, There is no great movement in human history that did not have an amazing communicator somewhere in the midst of it, who set language, who with rhetorical flair incited fury, patriotic duty, zeal, love, and hate. Now, you know what makes Christianity an outlier in all this? is that was not the only power that Christianity had, was our words. The Apostle Paul writes 75% or is connected to 75% of the New Testament in some way. He is the greatest missionary we have ever had, and yet he tells us he was not a great preacher. He says that, I'm not a good preacher. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power. See, Christianity flourishes in the world, not simply by the words that we use, but by the power of the Spirit. And there are a lot of people who think, yeah, I couldn't talk about who Jesus is. I couldn't talk about the gospel. I'm just not that great. It's not just about you. It is about the Holy Spirit who comes and gives your words power as you begin to speak them. As we talk out, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work among those who are preaching. Christianity, just like in our culture today, it looks like ridiculousness to the world that is around us. We become humble, and that's how you become great? What? God loves us even in this state? I'm going to clean myself up to go to a place to worship God? God loves me just where I am? This is the same thing. It's ridiculousness, and yet the power of God brings people who were converted to Christ. Yes, in the history of the church, we have had great preachers and great communicators that would show up. But early on, that's not what it looked like. And Matt Chandler even talks about this. He makes fun of Paul and he says, Paul, he says, our varsity guy couldn't preach a lick. And yet he was planting churches all over the ancient world. This is why you understand, yes, our words are powerful, but it's not the only power that God uses in his people. It is the Holy Spirit who works through us, and the Holy Spirit convicts us when our powerful words are used in wrong ways. We need to trust and listen to Him, which goes to secondly then. Our words reveal the progress of our faith and who we really are. Our words are going to reveal that. Self-discipline in regard to speech, I don't know if you know this, talking to your friends, it is very rare. I have only known a few people in life who exercised wisdom in that area, and yet a mark of real maturity of self-discipline in that area. The Bible teaches this truth, especially in the Old Testament wisdom literature, that the older we get, certain things will start to lose their power in your life, especially in your twilight years when all you want to do is sleep and eat. 
Certain things lose their power. Your desire to conquer, your desire to be mighty. Uh, most of the people I know who are humble are older. And I think that comes from not worrying about what everybody else thinks about you anymore. Although that also can be bad. We don't worry about people think at all, right? But they seem to be a little bit humble. One thing that does not diminish, though, and the scriptures teaches this, is our tongue and what we say. People can get full-on dementia, and yet our tongues will start and end up as vipers that lash out and destroy those we love the most. I am terrified of this. I am terrified that one, my memory's already horrible, and I, I'm afraid that one day I'm going to get dementia, and all the things that I preached and talked about my entire life, I'm just going to like destroy all that because I just go nuts and my mouth becomes a viper. The tongue tends to get sharper and more aggressive as we grow older. Our hearts, if they are bitter, that means your tongue just gets stronger and more biting with age. This is why our words, which are powerful, are going to reveal the progress of our faith and how we're walking with Jesus. What does Jesus say? Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of his heart the mouth speaks. You go back to that one-fifth of our words, you know, our, of our lives are spent talking. Well, those words come out of our mouths. And so where do they come from? Where does it, it tell us it came from? Our hearts. That's where it comes from. Our words aren't powerful just because they vibrate the air. Our words are powerful because they're showing who we really are deep inside. Our words, one author says this, our words are powerful because it's our heart saying to another soul, this is what I think about you. And so our words are revealing what's really going on inside of us, in our own hearts. And if we're honest about this, some of our hearts are marked with words that tear down and words that attack and words that hurt others. And then what does that then say about us as a people? What does that say how we view those around us? Here's a hard question, and I want you to raise your hand. Here we go. How many of you have purposely tried to wound another person with your words? Everybody should raise your hands, and if you're not, you're a liar. Did I just wound you with my words? We have all said things that we knew in a moment we should not say, and yet we said them anyway. That gives us a picture of our heart. And that should lead us to a place where we become poor in spirit. We realize that this is who I am. And if this is who I am, what hope is there for me? Well, the hope for us is found in the gospel because understanding that and coming to a place of being poor in spirit is actually a gift of God. It can lead us to a place where we understand the gospel. Think of how you talk about and look at your life. You don't have to wonder if you have an angry or a victimized or a jealous heart. Your words are going to reveal it. If you're always snapping and exploding, that means you have an angry heart. If you're always lashing out at others because you think they're getting something or they're looking down on you, you might have a victimized heart. It, when you get angry and lash out, it just doesn't mean you didn't have enough sleep. It means your heart is a jerk you got to understand that. Do you constantly feel the need to one-up somebody? Somebody's talking a story. You go, oh, I was there. I did that once. And you got to put yourself in the middle of it. That's a jealous heart where no one gets to have a story without you in the middle of it. What drives our mouth is our heart, and what drives our heart is our identity. And this is where the gospel steps into that place and gets a hold of our heart, which can actually then begin to change the words that we use. 
The gospel lets us see that our identity doesn't have to be wrapped up in ourselves or what other people think about us. The gospel, when rightly understood, Christ coming to rescue us in himself can transform our mouths. It can make us edifiers and encouragers. Why? Because we understand that it is Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness that rests on us. And we are first and foremost, when we trust him, children of God. We are accepted. We are loved. God is for us. He is not against us. All of our sins were laid on the person of Christ, on the cross. Now our words can begin to change because our hearts have begun to change. This is how important it is to understand that. When you say things you shouldn't say, yes, be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But also think of the grace that God allowed you to hear that, that His Spirit is working in you enough to be like, oh, yes, I shouldn't have said that. And you go back and you lay that before him and you go, God, I should, exactly, exactly. This is why, trust me, walk with me. Let my spirit lead you and guide you. And when you are somewhere, when someone lets you down, that you can realize they're not your savior. So you don't have to freak out and say horrible words. Jesus is your savior. And if you are somewhere where your spouse or a friend or your kid acts like a spaz and they totally embarrass you, you don't have to say words and freak out because you have embarrassed God on many occasions. And yet he still loves you anyway. This is the beauty of the gospel. If you come across someone who is really good at something and you want to be really good at that thing, but you're not good at that thing, you can still be like, that's amazing. Look at the gift God gave them because God loves you exactly the way you are. You are still his kid exactly the way you are. Your identity does not come because you think you're the best person in the herd of morons that you run with. <laughs> Did I finish with my words? I'm sorry. <laughs> your identity... And your righteousness come from Christ. And you have nothing to prove to anyone except maybe how much you actually love Jesus. And how your life is laid before him. Again, our words are going to reveal the progress of our faith and who we are. And who are we? We are God's children. That's who we are. And our words are powerful. Think about this. What would it be like if we as element, as a people, were known as those who encourage and edify those around us? What if that's how we were known. They love Jesus and it causes them to edify and encourage everyone around. The people who are hurting would be trying to get in these doors because they want to be edified and encouraged. But it's not just because we're encouragers. It comes to the place where we understand we ourselves have been poor in spirit. We ourselves are the ones who was lost and God came and saved us because we understand the good news of God's rescue, the gospel. And would you be willing this week this month, today, to take a couple moments and start to think and pray through a list of people you could speak life into simply because you understand that God has spoken life into your own life. Instead of thinking, oh, that person drives me nuts. Look how terrible they are. You would think, okay, they need to understand the gospel and I'm going to speak gracious good news to them. Maybe you think of someone who's really awesome in your life and you never tell them. Maybe you should tell them, especially if it's your spouse. You should say nice things to your spouse all the time. What does our mouth reveal about us? Guys, we should be coming to a place of understanding the gospel that begins to be a place where we reveal the good news that God has rescued us and he has sent us to be his people. And so we live and speak differently in the world. But living and speaking differently, again, as I always say, it doesn't make God love us more. It comes out of understanding that God has already first loved us. 
This is why it is so important to understand the good news of what the gospel actually brings, of Christ's rescue spoken over us as he brings us to himself. The gospel becomes paramount in our lives, not just because it's a word that we use, but because of what it actually means. Our God rescued us. Our God saved us in the person of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And by understanding that and understanding the places where we fall short and that God still loves us in the midst of that and brings us to himself, not because we've done something to make him do it, but because he simply loves us enough to bring us back to himself, that's what changes us. That's what changes our words. It's what changes our actions. It changes how we see everybody around us because of what? He has done. And that should make us edifiers. That should make the evil that is our tongue become less evil and become something where we get to speak hope and grace to those around us. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion this morning. Communion is a place where we remember God's gracious gift given to us. If you have a judgmental tongue, if you have words that just tear each other down, when you come to communion this morning, it doesn't mean you can't come. Communion is the place to remember why our hearts change, why our words change, why our lives change. And it's because of what Christ has done. We don't change because we think this will make God love me more if I change. We change because we understand what God did to save us. It's a whole different perspective of how our lives change, of how things begin to look different. Because we first understand Him and His grace. And so in communion this morning, when you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken and you drink that grape juice, it's that reminder of what Christ did to rescue us to bring us back to our understanding of the gospel. And that changes everything about our lives. This is why we come poor in spirit. It's not that God just wants us to walk around, I'm hoping I'm poor in spirit, I'm terrible. No, you're not Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. It's not who you are. It's that we understand our state, so we also understand the great gift that God has given to us. That God doesn't love us because of how good we act or how all the things that we did. God loves us because he deemed to love us. And in that love, our lives change, and that includes our mouths. And if you need prayer this morning, maybe you're someone who just feels like you can't control your speech and it always comes out in horrible and negative ways, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with one of us. We'd love to be able to pray and talk through some of that with you. Because God is good. And we want to always come back to understand the gospel. There's offering boxes next to every door. And we are a church who doesn't pass a plate, but we are still called to give because God first gave to us. And this is why you have the opportunity on your own to be able to do that, to give because God has been so generous with his love and his grace and his kindness and his most affectionate words spoken over us. Because he loves us. I encourage you to grab some sermon notes, take those questions, talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about those, and maybe start to really look at the words you say and why we say the words that we do. And then encourage one another to think back and understand becoming that poor in spirit, humbling ourselves because we are humbled because of the gospel, because of what God has done. And then we can live our lives out in this world in ways that reflect who he is, that we become edifiers and encouragers. Not because that gives us worth or standing before God, but simply because we want to edify as God has edified us in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would make us a people almost become undone in the sense of being able to understand your great love first spoken over us. 
and an understanding that love, it wouldn't make us be like, oh yeah, I'm so great. Look how much God loves me. It would take us from the place of understanding our poorness and spirit before you to begin to live that out in ways of humbleness that we get what we don't deserve. Which is grace, which is salvation, which is hope, which is life again. And God, when we look around our own lives, we see so many people who we think don't deserve our mercy, who don't deserve kind words from us, who don't deserve grace. And in those times, we fail to understand that before you, we are those people. We are not so wonderful that you just had to come and save us. We are so lost that we can never be saved on our own. And I ask that you would remind us of what the gospel brings. Our salvation, our life with you again. That we would understand the gospel itself, the announcement of that good news of what you have done. And we would be a people who surrender our entire lives to you so we would live out in this world in ways that speak of your hope and your grace and your life, that we would become edifiers because your spirit edifies us. Teach us to not be a people who do things out of our own strength and power, but do things as a response to your strength and power given to us. And in the places where we think we're not good teachers or our words won't come out right, we would also understand the strength and power of your spirit. That is not just by our words, is that your spirit does a work through us in ways we could never even comprehend. That you bring people to you. And though we speak and preach many times something that sounds like ridiculousness to the world, it is grace and life and restoration with the creator of the universe who wants to be in relationship with people that he now calls his own children. Teach us to live out our lives as these adopted people before you. That we would have grace, that we would instill hope, that we would instill life because this first been given to us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So as Mikey drops the curtains, I want you to take a couple minutes right now and kind of walk through in your own mind. God, who are you calling me to edify? Or maybe you feel like you can't edify anybody right now because you're so angry and maybe you don't understand the gospel itself. Ask that God would start to reveal that and talk to you about that. Then say, God, give me a list of people that you are calling me to go out and edify with words of the gospel and words of grace and words of hope and words of life. Maybe you ask God to bring the people into your mind that you have maybe torn down with your words and you are now being called to go back and lay hope in front of them instead of what has torn them down. Ask God to use you in a way that speaks of the hope of the gospel where you are in the relationships that you are in so that he would be glorified and we be able to be his hands and feet in this world because he is good. Then come take communion, sing some songs with us. 
Let's worship God and walk outside of these walls different than when we came in. Not any more loved, not any more saved, but maybe just a little bit different in how we use our words. That we would speak of the hope of God's grace in all that we do.